Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to be picking back up where we left off last week. I'm going to read, starting in verse 17, it kind of rolls a little bit smoother here, and I'm going to read 17 down to 28, so follow along. And if you have, were not here last week, I certainly encourage you to go back and watch online uh, the teachings or listen and, uh, and catch up if you haven't been with us here in the beginning of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 17. For he testifies, you're a, high, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weaknesses and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Verse 20, and inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because there were they were prevented by death from continuing, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Again, Father, we ask you by the power of the Holy Spirit, just open up your word to us this morning. Speak to us clearly. May we have ears again, Lord, to receive and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. The writer begins here in the book of Hebrews, but especially this chapter, chapter 7, explaining the superior priesthood of Christ. And he begins with the reference to the superior order or the order of Melchizedek. We see that in, uh, back in referencing in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 14. Jesus Christ is both king and priest, and his throne is a throne of grace. How do we know that? We read that in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. When you hear these words that Jesus, our Savior, is uh, one is a king, but also priest, many times we don't really think that through of what does that really mean to you and I. Those are just titles to many people. Okay, he's king. 
I sing it. That's fine. Oh, he's priest. Oh, that's interesting. I know lots of priests. But you don't know the high priest, the great priest, or the perfect high priest. We just know of earthly priests. And there's been thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of priests through many religions. But do you know your perfect high priest? That is the question. And he is Jesus Christ, our Savior. God in the flesh. Who saves you. Who went to the cross for you. Not the church. Didn't go, didn't go to the cross for you. Your parents did not go to the cross for you. Your spouse did not go to the cross for you. Your job did not go to the cross for you. Only one perfect Lamb of God went to the cross to be slain for you. And that is Jesus Christ. So when you see that our, our Savior is king and priest, you understand that as king he can control circumstances around you. He is king. I don't care what circumstance you find yourself in today, good or bad, he is in control. And as priest, he can change attitudes within you. You have a stinking attitude, then come to the high priest, the perfect high priest. He can change your attitude. He can change the way you feel, the way you think, the way you react to the circumstances that he is in control of. The question is, do you really believe that your perfect high priest is absolutely in control, not only of your eternal life as a savior, but your daily life of circumstances and your attitude? That's the question that we're always all faced with. So the sooner you can turn your mind upon your high perfect priest, the sooner the attitude will come in line or your will will come in line or your attitude should come in line with his. And that, that you no longer are anxious and worrying and, and troubled and heavy laden because you've come to your perfect high priest and your perfect king and you've cast all your cares upon him. And you recognize in your mind, then into your heart, that he is in control of all of your circumstances of your life as a Savior. Now, again, if, if, you're, if Jesus is not your Savior, this is, this, is, this is hard for you to understand because you won't understand these things because you're not born again, you're not saved. Yes, you go to church somewhere, you might come in here for the very first time and we welcome you here. With open arms, and we hope that you no longer playing religiosity, playing church, but you have a relationship with your perfect high priest, the only one that can save you, the only one who can represent you, and the only one who's going to have open arms for you in heaven. And so we encourage you to know Jesus. And you will experience, as we read last week in chapter 7, his righteousness and peace as you yield or surrender to him. We saw that back in verse 2. I'll give you two verses to also flush that out a little bit for you. And that is in Psalm chapter 85, verses 9 and 10. 
says, surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in your land. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Now that's a closeness. So righteousness, as we learned last week, righteousness and peace go together. You cannot have God's peace without his righteousness. So you must be made right in him by him clothing you in his righteousness when you surrender your life. And when that happens, you will experience this undescribable peace, his peace. He is peace that comes within you. Isaiah 32, 17, the work of righteousness will be peace. And the effect of righteousness is a quietness and assurance forever. I love that. Another name, of, a way of describing peace is that, that quietness and assurance forever. Do you have that? Are you experiencing that, that quietness, that assurance in your daily life as you walk with Jesus? Draw close to him and he will draw close to you, the scripture says. And you will have that assurance. You will have that quietness, that peace that's within. So many people today, I just, I hope you're praying and I, I, we, I grieve over so many people are in, not in good space these days. They're filled with anxieties. They're filled with anxiety. Worries, they're filled with uncertainty, they're filled with just doubts and so many things that they don't, they've never experienced the peace of God. And I do hope today's the day that you will take the step toward the Lord and experience this peace that God speaks about. Remember, an earthly priesthood that many people follow today. And it didn't work then in the Old Testament, and it doesn't work today. An earthly priesthood can make nothing perfect, we saw in verse 11 of chapter 7. And nor can the law of God, following the law in verse 19, give you that sense of peace that's going to come. Nor will we see sacrifices that you think you're making that somehow will give you the peace of God. We will see that in chapter 10 verses 1 through 3. Will not give that to you. It's only his righteousness will give his peace that will fill your life. Jesus can lead you into spiritual maturity as you walk by faith. And we will learn that in chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. A perfect salvation that took place in your life, a born-again experience, should lead you to a life of growing maturity in Christ. Let me say that again to you. If you have this perfect salvation, that born-again experience, you should con continually grow and mature in your understanding and your knowledge and your love for Jesus Christ. How do you know if you're growing spiritually? Besides coming here and in fellowship to learn and to hear the word of God spoken, you will desire for the things of God. You will want to read the word of God because that's how he speaks to you and I. Not only will he speak to you through his word and you desire his word, 
You will desire to be in the fellowship of other believers. And you will have a desire to talk to him about all things. Not only when you're in trouble, but you will praise him and you will thank him and be grateful constantly through the day for all the small and big things. These are things, there'll be a fruit called love that will eventually, as you mature, will bear from your life this unconditional love for God, but for one another as well. Now the words here we'll see today is he, God invites you to come to his throne. He understands you better than you even understand yourself. <laughs> I'm always talking to the guys. Have you figured out your wife yet? And they all have this glazed look. No, I haven't figured it out. Yeah, I've been married 33 years. We're celebrating it this year. And I still haven't figured out my wife. That's what keeps it interesting, as we say in our house. <laughs> but I always tell guys, you, want to, you don't even know yourself. Why do you think you're going to figure her out or figure him out? You need to go to God, and he already knows who she is and already knows who he is. Go to Jesus and ask him, Lord, what do I need to What do I do? How do I minister? How do I love her? How do I, how do I respect him? How do I love him? How do I... This, come to Jesus. He knows them very, very well. We will see the words translated for the word perfect and perfection are key words that we see throughout the book of Hebrews. I won't name them all, but there are many. And they're essentially, they mean complete or completed or fulfilled. That is what the word is consistently through the book of Hebrews when you look at the translation in the Greek and the Hebrew. But the Old Testament priests could not, by their ministry, Complete the work of God in the heart of a worshiper. It was not complete. For the law made nothing perfect. It wasn't perfect in the old. It just brought to light how much we needed a Savior. It pointed to the fact that the Messiah was coming. That's what the law did. The animal sacrifices could not give any worshiper a perfect standing with God. It was just a covering. It was temporary. That's why it had to be sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice to keep them covered of the sins that they've committed. The Mosaic system of divine law was not a permanent system. It was just a picture. It was temporary and pointing to the Messiah who would come. And it was added to serve as a tutor or a schoolmaster to prepare for the coming of Christ. You can go back and read Galatians chapter 3 verse 19 through chapter 4 verse 7. Which now brings us here into Hebrews chapter 7 verse 20 today. And we'll finish up chapter 7 talking about the superiority of our perfect high priest. It says, inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath. For they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. 
Again, referencing back to Psalm 110, verse 4, where that we see that originally spoken of about Melchizedek. The priesthood of Jesus was established with an oath. An oath, an order of the Melchizedek, that's how God ordered that. We see that Jesus was made with an oath. Whereas a priest, Aaron, his lineage, was not by an oath. If you remember, those priests was a Levitical system. There was no swearing-in ceremony for those priests. The high priest of the order of Aaron was appointed by heredity. It was based on being born in the tribe of Levi, and also to be a high priest, you were to be born on the lineage of Aaron and after. That was the way you became a high priest. That's the way you were able to serve within the tabernacle. A Levi is the way they were able to serve because they were part of a tribe. There was no swearing of ceremony whatsoever. There was no moral or spiritual fitness or qualifications for those priests to be able to serve within the tabernacle. And boy, did we see some of Aaron's two oldest sons went against God, and they died because they went against God. Their morals, their, their, their inner character did not line up with the qualifications or the purpose and responsibilities of that priesthood at that time. But Jesus Christ was, had an oath and he met all the qualifications to be the high priest perfectly. Jesus, the priestly order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ's heavenly priesthood was established based on his work on the cross. His character, and God even sealed his choice by an oath that Jesus would be our perfect high priest. Now in verse 22 we see, but so much more Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. We see here Jesus has become a surety. The ancient Greek word there for a surety is the first and only place we see in all of the, of the scriptures of this word surety. The word is eguos, or eguos, however you want to pronounce it. But that one word is only seen here in the scripture. It means a, a guarantor. It's someone, as we would refer to, is I want to buy a car, but I need a co-signer because I can't keep up my deal to pay for this if I don't have any money. So someone co-signs and says, not only will I help purchase it, but I will help take care of their end of the deal if they don't follow through with it. It's a co-signer, a guarantor. That's what it's, it's referring here in the word assurity. A guaranteed payment. Someone who put up the bail to be able to bring someone out, out of a, as a prisoner. They couldn't come up with the bail. Someone else came up with the bail. They had the surety to release them and set them free. Jesus himself is the guarantee of a better covenant. What is the better covenant? 
Well, the Old Covenant had a mediator, yes. His name was Moses. God used him. But no one to guarantee the people's side of the covenant or the agreement that God had for his people. Moses kept up his deal. Did, his, did, God, did the people keep up their deal? They sure did not. Matter of fact, they rebelled and had no faith. They weren't even, the whole generation wasn't even able to go into the promised land because they wouldn't hold up the deal of following Jesus or following God Almighty. So they continually failed. That's why they had to go back to the temple over and over, the tabernacle over and over and over to have the high priest sacrifice for their sins. Even the priests had to sacrifice for their own sins before they could sacrifice for the people's sins. Why? Because the priests are not perfect. The people were not perfect. But under the new covenant, a better covenant, we have a cosigner. We have the guaranteed on our behalf. The new covenant depends on what Jesus did, uh, did, not on what we do. Our assurity comes through our faith in Jesus Christ and what he did, the complete finished work on the cross. But still even today, people who give their life to Jesus still think they have to do a lot of rules and regulations and the checklist of do's and don'ts to somehow earn their way to salvation. If that's your mindset, then you don't have the understanding of the surety of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The only way you and I get to go to heaven is by the assurity of who Jesus is and what he's done on the cross. And we must find rest for our souls in the finished work of our guarantor. I hope you're hearing that. Because when you get freed from this legalistic legalistic that creeped into the churches... And you're still following priestlyhood kinds of people to somehow have be the mediator between you and God. Today's a day you're freed from that. Today you understand that you get to come boldly to Jesus Christ who is your mediator. 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 2.5 talks about the mediator between God and man and is Christ Jesus. He is our God's great assurity for our eternal life and the life we live today. The word covenant here, again, is a very unique name, a, new, a new, unique word here in the ancient Greek. It's diatheki. It's the only place we see in the scripture where this word, covenant word, is used to describe the, what we would refer to as a testament, which is translated as a last will and testament. The rest of the places in this, you know, the scripture for the word covenant is synthiki. It's a different word. 
But here it's diatheke, and that is referring to this last will and testament. It's referred to 21 times in the letter. And it's an agreement under which we meet with God through Jesus Christ in that relationship. And it's not an agreement that we had the ability to negotiate in the dealings. We came to the deal, we were presented a, an agreement, a last will and testament for our lives, and says, this is the deal. If you will put your trust in Jesus Christ and you agree with the terms, you agree with what Jesus has done for you, it's already written up, you could be saved. But if you, like many people today, are negotiating with God and says, I'm going to do it my way. I think me and God, we're good. We're, we, we're tight. He'll accept me however I want, even though I don't really believe who he is. And I really don't even care to pursue him. And I really don't want to abide in anything he's telling me. I want to live my life, but somehow still get a guarantee. No, you're not following the rules. You're not following the agreement. The agreement is very simple. Do you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Surrendering your life, that's what it means. Literally surrendering your life, your will over to His. And you shall be saved. It's a pretty simple agreement, don't you agree? There's no fancy legalistic wording of involved. There's no lawyers involved. You don't have to pay money. You don't have to do anything for it. You can't. Because you don't have the money. You don't have the ability. And you certainly don't have a history in your life to, of self-righteousness of thinking you can earn your way to heaven. God wrote up the agreement. He sent the mediator to talk to you about it. The question is, did you and I agree to the agreement? By faith. And if you did, you, you experienced the born-again experience. You were regenerated. Your spirit came alive. And your desire is to know Jesus, your Savior, more and more every day. And you can boldly come into the throne of God and talk to our heavenly, your Heavenly Father directly because you're coming through that relationship that you have with Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. That's what he's speaking here. So much more. Such a surety. Such a better covenant than anything else that this world or any else, anyone else could ever offer you. Is the guarantee of eternal life. Verse 23. Also, there were many priests because... They were pre prevented by death from continuing. But he, 
Jesus becomes because he continually he continues forever has an unchangeable priesthood therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him which he always lives to make intercession for them these are that last one verse 25 is one of the most quoted and <laughs> remembered and understood oh Jesus is Jesus is up there interceding for me well, let's talk about that a little bit so you have clarity of what those, those scripture means. Because if you look here in verse 23, he, the writer says the priesthood under the law of Moses constantly changed out. Why? Because those priests died. <laughs> they only lived so long. And then you went on to the next priest. Oh, man, I hope he kicks, doesn't kick off too soon here. I hope he's the high priest a little longer. Because have you seen the oldest son next? He's not a great, great guy. He's going to be the next high priest. Why? Not because he qualified, only because he was next in line. <laughs> now, we laugh that bad, but it happens today. How many times people go to church and say, Oh, pastor's going to die here soon. I wonder what the next pastor's going to be like. Next priest is dying. I wonder who they're going to send next to be the next pastor priest. Because it was always a turnover. Always a turnover. Always wondering what it will be. Is there going to be a good one next time or a bad one next time? And if he's a bad one, maybe he has a short life. Now the entire congregation is praying for a shorter life for the high priest so they can go to the next brother, the next son. How would you like to have that happen? Your whole entire congregation praying you would die off soon so we can go to the next one because you're, te you're terrible. <laughs> but you know it happens. But under the law of Moses, the priests were dying. And they went on to the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one. But in contrast, this writer says Jesus is our unchangeable priesthood. Jesus will never die. He has a permanent priesthood. We don't need to worry about a bad priest replacing him. He will be the priest, our high priest, our perfect high priest for eternity. That's why you establish this relationship and it's going to be for eternity. We have that assurity, the guarantor. And it will continue forever. The Greek word here in that word for continues means an everlasting. It means it's remaining as a servant. Jesus Christ is going to remain as a servant. He continues forever. He continues as a servant even after he ascended into heaven ministering to us. He also is able to save to the uttermost. The unchanging nature of Jesus and his priesthood means that the salvation he gives to you and to I is also unchanging. 
unchanging. It's permanent. It is secure when you put your, your faith in Jesus Christ. Did you hear what I said? How many people get saved and then they think they could lose their salvation? You're not going to lose your salvation. You just don't lose it. The security, the permanency, the unchanging is in the relationship of who Jesus is, who we put our trust in. He is not ever going to change. He's not going to die. You're not going to have to see how long you have to keep that relationship going until you have to, if he dies, then you find the next one to get in a relationship with to hope that he will take you into heaven. No, it's not how it works. It's eternity. It's eternal. It's permanent. It's secure. See, most people, when they read this verse of this, this, this change, he says, most people will read this verse and it talks about Jesus is able to save from the uttermost. But that's not what the word says. Look at the scriptures again. It doesn't say from the uttermost. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. Why? Because he is our perfect high priest forever. He can save forever. He is able to save continually. He is, we put our trust, trusted faith in him. It will be permanent. But we're, who's the promise of this for? Look at the promise. Save to the uttermost those those who come to God through Jesus. You must finish the sentence. This promise is not for someone who's a non-believer. God, Jesus will be with you. I know you're about to die. I know he'll be with you. But are they born again? Do they know Jesus? That's not a promise for them. That promise is only for those who surrender their life to Jesus. Then, then, you're able to be saved to the uttermost to those who come to God through, through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Our Savior lives. All these other priests had died. But our Savior continues to live. This tells us whom Jesus is able to save. It means those who abide in his Son and have fellowship with the Father is also where we have come to. We come to God to have that happen. There is no other way or place to go to find the security, the surety of eternal life other than coming to Jesus. If you abide in yourself, or you abide in some system, or some church system, it's not going to save you. It's right here. It's clear as can be. Talk to anybody who trusts in the fact that they belong to a certain church. That will not save you. The scripture's right here. It tells us we must come to Jesus to be saved. 
It means that those who abide in His Son will have fellowship with the Father. That tells us that we must come to God. And it is only one thing to come to, to church and get something out of it. But it's another to come to God. Over the years, how many times I've said, can you tell me your life story? Tell me how your relationship with God. And those who I can always immediately tell who, who really is a born-again believer. I really can. Because the first things out of their mouth who's a believer will say, I know Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And I've surrendered all. I'm talking to probably talking to a believer but if I talk to majority of the people to say oh I belong to this church that tells me they don't know a savior probably a question mark for me because the first things out of their heart out of their mouth from their heart was the fact that they put their trust in a relationship with the church not relationship with the savior or I hear Pastor, I give, I give money. Money ain't going to save you. Oh, I, I go to church, you know, sometimes through the year. Going to church doesn't save you. Or I'm very popular these days with the younger folks. I'll hear them say, oh, I, I grew up in a, in a Christian home. My, my, my grandma loves Jesus, I know that. My parents, they, they go to church. They love Jesus. But what about you? Do you love Jesus? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Because your parents are not going to save you. As much as your grandmother and grandfather wants to save you, they can't save you. Oh, they're praying for your salvation. And as much as you go to church and how much money you give and how much you serve, I serve at the church. I am so thankful you serve at the church. But that doesn't save you. Only a relationship with Jesus and abiding in him, the Son, saves you. And that abiding in his Son, Jesus Christ, is the security that you have as a believer. And so when we come to God through Jesus, he saves us to the uttermost. Jesus is as absolute, complete security of salvation. Period. Now he says here, he ever lives to make intercession for them. That statement strengthens us to know that Jesus prays for you and for me. You put your trust in him, he is literally praying and interceding and ministering to you, personally. That he ever lives to pray for you. I mean, if, not, if that's not encouragement in a time of difficult situations, that your Savior literally is in heaven ministering, praying, and interceding for you personally. And I always tell people, if you're a born-again believer and you're at the end of your rope and you have this feeling of giving up, turn your eyes upon Jesus, 
the author and the finisher of your life, who is interceding in heaven for you right now, and it will give you hope to take the next step for that day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Why? Because he's interceding for you. Do not give up because your Savior has not. He can see us. Right down to the nth degree, he sees us through every trial and every difficulty that he has allowed to come into your life. And he is willing to take and walk with you through that dark valley to the very end of that valley. So many people as Christians are losing a grip because they do not abide or they're not turning to Jesus as a believer in the fact that he is not going to let you go. That somehow this one has escaped him and how could he allow me to be in this situation and difficulty? Well, first of all, you should ask the question, is my sin is the one that caused me to be brought into that difficulty and trial? But even through that, he's willing to walk with you through every trial and difficulty to bring you out through the other end. In chapter 1, we saw that after he purged our sins, wiped our sins completely gone, Jesus went to the right hand of the throne of our Heavenly Father and sat down. And he's alive and interceding for you and I. If you go back and read Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, Apostle Paul considers this intercessory work of Jesus on our behalf very, very important. It pictured Jesus defending us against every charge and damnation through this intercession. We even know in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, it says, a perfect example here, where Jesus is interceding for his people. If you remember, he says, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Oh, so many people pass over that scripture in Luke. Jesus was literally saying to Simon Peter, I know you're going to walk away from me. But I'm going to intercede for you. Yes, Satan may be throwing you off balance for a little bit, but when you come back, I'm, I'm interceding you. When you come back, use that falling away to be now a strength for you to encourage others. And how many times do we fall and we fail, and then we ask, and the enemy comes in and says, Oh, you're done with. You can never be used by God again. And I say you to you today, Simon, Simon. When you return to me, strengthen your brother. When you rise back up, get back up. And continue to follow him. He will use your life 
for the sake of others. It's not over. You have the assurity of Jesus Christ as your perfect high priest. Jesus' intercession on our behalf is not a matter of pacifying some angry father in heaven. Many times people have that. Oh, Jesus, please calm the heavenly father down. Don't let him throw a bolt down on me. This is going to be really bad. That is not how your heavenly father's, nor is the purpose what Jesus is doing. He's not pacifying an angry father who wants to destroy you. It is not a matter of continually chanting prayers on behalf of his people. Jesus is not up there just reciting the same prayer over and over and over and over and over to get the Father to change his mind, not to wipe you and me out because of our, our weaknesses. It means that Jesus is continually representing us before the Father so that we can draw near to the Heavenly Father through the relationship that we have in Jesus. And that he defends us against Satan's accusations and attacks and all the things that come against us and the fiery darts that are thrown constantly at us. Jesus prays to strengthen us in our trials and our seasons of attack and against Satan's accusations. He is representing you and me. So Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, yes. And when the Father, he said, you, you picture sometimes Jesus kind of negotiating with the Father. Yeah, Corey really messed up this time, but I think, you, Father, I, please, kind of, can you look over this one one more time? Please, calm down. Don't take him out. I think he can probably, after, after 70th time, I think he's going to get it this time. That's not what's happening. Jesus, the Father looks at Jesus and, and sees his wounds of his hands and his feet. He sees the scars of the brow on his, on his head. He sees the healed scar of the hole in his side of his son. And the Father sees a Savior for Corey. He sees a Savior for you. And that is the grace of God. That is the love of God. That it is his, his finished work on the cross that brings us through into a surety of eternal life because of our relationship with our Savior. He paid it all in full. That's why when you see when Jesus is standing there and Thomas just needs a little bit more of assurance. And Thomas finally sees Jesus. And what does Jesus say to Thomas? Thomas, let's go over the doctrines one more time so you can get this. Nope. 
Thomas, let's check your tithe report. Let's, how much money did you give to the church for the kingdom of God? Nope. How many people did you bring to church today? Nope. How much good work did you do? How much? How many people did you touch? Good works. Nope. All Jesus said to Thomas was, touch my wounds. Touch my wounds, Thomas. Be strengthened and encouraged. I've already paid for it. I've already paid for that sin. I've paid for your doubt, Thomas. Just follow me. That is a great Savior. Verse 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who was holy and harmless and undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices. First for their own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all what he suffered, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. The priests under the law of Moses did not have the personal character to be a high priest. They certainly did not have the personal character of the Son of God, our perfect high priest. No matter how devoted, how obedient those priests were under the law of Moses, it did not come to perfection. It was not complete. It was not fulfilled. There was no surety apart from the Messiah. They could not always be there to meet every need of the people. They were incapable as humans to do it. They were imperfect. The law was imperfect. It missed the mark many times over. But Jesus Christ perfectly meets all of our needs. He is a perfect fit for us, we see here in the scripture. He is perfect sinlessness example for you and I to follow. Jesus is holy, the scripture says here. He is harmless. There is no deceit. There is no deception. There is no craftiness in Jesus at all who we follow. We see that he's undefiled. That means he's pure. There is no sin. He's sinlessness in his life. But he also is separate from sinners. What does that mean? It's, it's a sense that he's, he doesn't share and he does not participate in the sins of the people. 
We know that he ate with sinners. He was ministering to sinners. He was around sinners. He didn't isolate himself from sinners on some mountaintop and humming and praying by themselves in some sackcloth. He was among the people, the sinners, so that they could lead people to come to know who he is, so that they could surrender their life to him and follow him. But he did not sin with them, their sins. They did not participate in the sinful things. He did not condone. He didn't accept those sins. Never did he sit there and, oh, okay, you two are living together. No big deal. Keep showing up. Have fun. We're having a great time. Let's hang out. You're getting drunkard? Oh, no big deal. <laughs> Drugs, no big deal. Your pride, your ego, no big deal. He addressed every sin. But he did it in a way to lead them to a complete answer and fulfillment of being able to take away that sin in a relationship with him. Because that was the only way for them to be forgiven. But our Savior is holy harmless, undefiled. He's not into sin. He's not participating in sin. He doesn't want anything to do with that sin. Jesus is far superior in his personal character than any earthly priest who tries to present themselves as something perfect. Any priest, any pastor who says they are not a sinner, saved by grace, is someone you should not be around. Because there's only one that had, was not, had one blemish, and that was Jesus. The rest of us were filled with blemishes. And notice, has become higher than the heavens. There's two facts here in this scripture. One is the fact that our Jesus' perfect character is, exalts him above and into the heavens. And secondly, he did not need to offer up sacrifices to cover his sins while on this earth that didn't turn around to be able to sacrifice something for other people's sins. He was sinless. The other priests had to do it daily. He had to do it once. And that was the finished work on the cross. And then he turned around after giving his life for you and me. We see in the scripture, the writer says, when he offered up himself. An earthly priest may bring a sacrifice for you. They may even try to tell you to do repentance and all kinds of things to try to see how that would be your sacrifice you can bring. But it will not amount to anything for you. You can bring it to the altar. You can bring it to the church. But Jesus was both the priest and the sacrifice. He is the great assurity, the great guarantor. Not only is the one bringing the agreement, but he also brings the sacrifice to the agreement. 
And as he comes to this agreement, he's both the priest and the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice brought to God the Father by the perfect high priest who sacrificed himself. The high priest of of man of this earth had weaknesses. Moses had weaknesses. Aaron had weaknesses. His sons all had weaknesses. But we see clearly and we know without without a doubt, Jesus is the son who has been perfected forever. Because he is the perfect high priest. He was able to offer up himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sin. Jesus is perfectly qualified to be our perfect high priest. I pray that you are following him and him alone.